Oh, Father God, we pray that you would speak to us now. Uh, uh, we have uh, lifted our hearts in praise, Lord. We pray that you would fill our hearts with uh, truth and empowerment for the coming week of life and ministry. I pray that you would make us difference makers. And along with that, Lord, I pray that you would make us different so that we can make a difference. I pray that you would give us the faith uh, and, and, and the spiritual power to be salt and light in a world that is uh, not salty, that is dark. Uh, give us the courage um, to be kingdom people in an environment of, of chaos. We pray that we would be witnesses to Jesus' love in our workplaces, our classrooms, in our neighborhoods. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, warm-up question. Are you a, uh, in the morning when you wake up, are you an oh yeah person or an oh no person? Which, which, which are you? Oh yeah, oh no? Oh yeah? You're excited to wake up? How, how many of you, when you open your eyes in the morning, you're like, yes! How many of you, when you wake up, open your eyes in the morning, you're like, oh no. How many of you are on the fence? How many of you are waiting to see how the sermon goes? Uh, it's, it's, it's just a question, you know, designed to get to your, to your attitude, to your approach. You know, your attitude uh, is the way that you approach things in, in life and we make a big deal about attitude at, at Blue Water because our attitude, our approach to things, influences almost everything. Uh, almost everything uh, about us, every behavior and our thought processes, our mindsets. Uh, we're in a sermon series on culture, and what culture is, is it's like a collective attitude, right? Culture uh, is, is the collective way in which we tend, as a group, to approach uh, certain things. And, and just like personal attitude, culture influences almost everything. It, it, it influences the way that we approach challenges in life, the way that we interpret facts, our mindsets, and of course it influences our behaviors a ton. At Blue Water Mission, we try very, very hard to develop a culture of love and a culture of faith. Faith is, is very countercultural, and so we love it when you walk into Blue Water Mission. If you just sort of, just sort of drink in, breathe in faith, not because somebody is lecturing you on faith, but because it's just in the culture you know, and that tends to make things uh, possible. We're doing a sermon series on culture. Really what we're doing is a sermon series on the culture wars because right now uh, our, our broader uh, culture, our community culture, our, our state culture, our nat national culture is in a state of tremendous change, tremendous uh, transition, and the rate of transition is just accelerating in a mind-boggling uh, mind fashion. And I think it is hard for us kingdom people to navigate culture today as culture is getting uh, increasingly challenging and increasingly harder to understand. It's difficult to know where you are in uh, the way society approaches things. It's easy to get caught on one side of a divide without ever choosing to be there. 
A um, lot of challenges, anyway, is, is what I'm saying. And no, nowhere is the culture war fought uh, more intensely uh, than when it comes to sexual culture. So today, uh, I'm going to talk uh, about sex, which for some reason makes certain people uh, nervous. So we're going to do, do a second warm-up. I want you to turn to the person next to you, and I want you to share your favorite sex joke. Go ahead. Just, just go ahead. Just. And then what we're going to do is survey and take the best ones, and we're going to discuss from up front. So No, it's not, not a... And he's saying, Jordan, you've gone too far this time. This time, you finally made me uncomfortable. All right, don't, 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 do, don't do that. You want to hear mine? No? Yeah? Woman comes home from another terrible date, walks into her apartment, and is greeted by her dog. And then she says out loud, oh, God, if only I could find a man like my dog. And a bright light glows in the room, and before her eyes, the dog morphs into this six-foot-two, 220-pound Adonis, holding her a cup of wine and a box of chocolates. <laughs> and he's got that look of affection on his face that she recognizes she walks up to him and melts into his arms, and he says, now aren't you sorry you got me neutered? <laughs> Our Bible reading for today is nice. We have, to, we have to ease our way into that. Now, is everybody relaxed? Can we talk about sex a little bit today? Is that is all right? Uh, because... Because it's a huge deal in our culture, right? Everybody is talking about it like all the time. Uh, so if we can't go there in church and, and talk about, about how to navigate sexual culture, then, you know, woe to us. Uh, we're going to have all sorts of problems and, and challenges. Um, I had a funny experience with this uh, way back in the day. Sony and I had, had just gotten in engaged. I was in my mid-20s. And... Um, and I was working for a, a software company at the time. I was working for Oracle Software. Some of you know that company in Silicon Valley. And, uh, and uh, it had just sort of gotten out in the office that I was engaged. And, and it was a very young company. Everybody on my floor was, was very young. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, they were all, you know, bouncing by my cubicle and saying, you know, congratulations and stuff like that. Some of them had met Sonia, some of them not. And uh, one of the young women who were working there came by and, uh, and, and for some reason just started giving me sex advice. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it's because everybody was young and it was just part of the, the collective conversation, you know, dating and, and sex and stuff like that. And so she went on for a while and, and somehow, you know, she, she, it, it was okay for her to ask me about my sex life. And it's like, you know, my sex life with my with my fiance, and I said, well, you know, I, I'm actually uh, inexperienced. I've, I've never had sex in my life. I'm, I'm a virgin. And, uh, and then she, she paused, she stood up, and shouted, you're a virgin? Virgin, 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 virgin. <laughs> it's like, through the end, you know, the whole, the whole department, you know, you got these little cubicles, the sound bleeds over that. 
and, and I just kind of looked around, and then like there's a hundred cubicles, and you see all these heads pop up. Look at this. Where, 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 where's the virgin? Where, where? And yeah, you know, I said, yeah, you know, and 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 this is why, and and uh, you know, I sort of gave a little bit of my philosophy on it, and then she scurries off, obviously, to spread the gossip, right? And then the rest of the day, right? The rest of the day, uh, people are dropping by my cubicle. Uh, you know, sometimes to tease me, and then as the, as the day went on, more progressively to, to ask me questions. So within 24 hours, more than one person was dropping by my cubicle to make confessions and to break down in tears and to ask me what they should do. And it's just, a, just one of those iconic experiences for me, right? It is unbelievable that in your mid-20s, you're engaged and, and, and you're still a virgin, Cannot believe it. How stupid, how crazy to please can you bring me some truth and healing within 24 hours? You know? And, and that's, that in a nutshell, I think, is what's going on um, in, in society. You know, you might, you might feel ridiculous if you're trying to be uh, sexually conservative, to use a label. Um, but um, you might find that you're able to bring some goodness and power um, in places where it is needed. Uh, but enough on that. That's not totally what we're talking about today. Uh, we're doing this sermon series on, on the culture war. And in the first week of the sermon series, I talked about uh, the philosophy of deconstruction or the phenomenon of deconstruction. Uh, God uh, tells us right at the very beginning, you know, honor your father and your mother. Honor where you've come from so that it will go well with you in the land uh, the Lord has given you. If, if you don't honor where you've come from, then, you know, God says there's something about how you lose things through the generations. You, you throw out the baby with the bathwater, you know, and, and a lot of us have very difficult families of origin, very difficult relationships with our parents, and a lot of bad things headed our way uh, from our parents. But, but if you don't honor them, then not only do you protect yourself from the bad stuff, you end up missing out on all the good stuff. You throw the baby out with the bathwater. You have to be more discerning than that, the Lord says. Uh, deconstruction says, no, dishonor. Uh, your father and your mother, dishonor all of your origins, not necessarily your biological father and mother, but like everything about the tradition that brought you to where you are. Just deconstruct things, uh, sort of destroy the pillars of culture, destroy the pillars of society. And, and, you know, it sounds like a random philosophy or a random phenomenon, but history shows that it happens again and again and again in successful dominant cultures. Once a culture gets a certain amount of success and once it becomes dominant in the world, then it tends to deconstruct itself. And there are all sorts of famous examples of this in history where really successful cultures just implode. They just collapse from the inside. They just eat themselves uh, so to speak, most famous examples like the Romans uh, or, or, or the Greeks. Uh, and they do this, they deconstruct themselves usually for the sake of freedom. It makes them feel free, unbound from unfair tradition and, and stuff like that. And, and once deconstructionism gets going, it's no, there's no limit to what it will destroy. It will destroy social customs, it will destroy individual identity, it will destroy relationships, it will destroy political systems, it will destroy family coherence, right down to the most basic things about ourselves. Once deconstruction gets going, it's like a, it's like a collective Freudian death wish. Everything 
gets deconstructed. Every element of fact and truth is on the chopping block uh, once it gets going. My favorite example of this in recent history is, is uh, communist China in the 70s. They had this thing called the Cultural Revolution where they had slogans like the past must be destroyed. Any artifact from the, from the past, a family photo album, a piece of art, anything needed to be burned in the fire and, and people had to publicly demonstrate uh, how they are, they are freeing themselves from the past. They totally deconstructed their society uh, as a result, of course, millions upon millions upon millions of Chinese people died because they found themselves on the wrong side of the cultural divide. They were just murdered or sent out to the countryside. And then there are some people here who live through that nonsense. It's just deconstructionism left unchecked. And it happens again and again in society. And I think we're in the throes of a deconstructionist culture right now. Uh, and deconstructionism is most dangerous because uh, of its disrespect for truth and facts. Truth becomes relative. Truth becomes something that you negotiate, that you vote on, instead of just an objective reality. Uh, as if, if truth is nothing more than majority rule, then everything and anything can be criticized and destroyed. That's the quote-unquote beauty of it. If truth uh, is on the chopping block, then anything can be questioned and therefore anything can be deconstructed and destroyed. That's how it works. And, and when that happens, then social dialogues become more about being on the right side of the divide, being in the right group, the dominant group, uh, than about what is true. Uh, and this creates groupism, what I call groupism. It creates us versus them thinking in politics and economics and education, even in science. It's not like the truth that you can defend. It's what group you're in. Are you in the, are you in the right group? And with no anchor in truth, uh, I don't know, things, things fall apart. Uh, my favorite poem uh, from the Nobel Prize winning poet W.B. Yeats. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. I think Yeats could have been writing about our culture. He was writing about postmodern culture, uh, but in the early 20th century. <clears throat> didn't think you'd get a little Yates today, did you? Uh, we talked the uh, second week about deconstructionist political culture because when challenges can't be decided by appealing to truth, then people resort to coercion and intimidation instead. And what happens uh, in deconstructionist political culture is that people want government to get very big, very controlling, and to enforce their preferred outcomes. Government becomes a ground of competition instead of a ground of, of compromise. It's us versus them politics. Does that sound familiar to you? Uh, and in the week after that, we talked about deconstructionist social justice. Social justice is, is super, super important uh, to Jesus, super, super important in, in, in the Bible. Uh, but when deconstructionism uh, gets a hold of social justice, then again, it just becomes, it becomes groupism. It's about us versus them. It's about who's in the oppressed group, who's in the oppressive group. Uh, and it's more about who's to blame than about what helps people. 
people are told to get angrier and angrier and angrier as opposed to, say, what Martin Luther King preached to people was to get more peaceful, more reconciliatory. That's out of fashion these days. We talked about deconstructionism and economic culture uh, because, you know, economy... It influences everything. I mean, it's just a huge, huge fact of our lives. Uh, and, and when deconstructionism gets a hold of economic culture, uh, then, then, you know, economic culture becomes more about fear-mongering. There's a groupism uh, in economic culture as well. Usually when, it, when economy is involved, it's called classism, right? It's about who has and who doesn't have, the haves and the have-nots. And... and uh, deconstructionism by, by preaching, you know, groupism and coercion increases the amount of fear and anxiety. And, and then the dialogue becomes about, well, who gets to control the economy then? Because, you know, economies should be controlled. Otherwise, you all are going to get screwed and, and be very afraid. You have, to, you have to be anxious. You have to scratch and claw and take control. Uh, and in history, we see you know, many examples of, of this happening in economic culture, and then we get these economic dictatorships, these political economic dictatorships. They always do terrible, terrible, terrible damage to people uh, when it happens. Uh, the Bible, by contrast, says, you know, don't worry. <laughs> uh, don't be anxious. The Lord provides. Don't give in to the fear. Be generous. Share. It's a different sort of sentiment. That's all review. Today we're going to talk about uh, sexual culture. When deconstructionism gets a hold of sexual culture, sexual morals get deconstructed, obviously. But what we find as well is that sexual culture follows the same patterns of groupism, of us versus them, sexual politics. Sex can be enormously constructive in society, but it can also be enormously deconstructive in society, enormously destructive because like, you know, like, I don't know, the economy, sex is something that has a big influence on all of our lives. Guess, what, guess what's happening in our culture? You, is, is, is sexual culture becoming an us versus them battle? Yes or no? Yeah. It's becoming enormously politicized. Enormously uh, destructive, uh, I, I would say. Um, there's some scriptures on the back of your program. Um, the first one is from Genesis chapter 4, and uh, this is sort of like on the, in the beginning of what the Bible says about, about sexual relationships. So what has happened, uh, at least as the Bible presents it, uh, is that uh, man and woman are created by God. The universe is created by God. Uh, one of the first things God does is he gives man woman and gives woman man. He sort of, sort of you know, he says, hey... Genders, sexuality, relationship, that's one of the building blocks of, of, uh, of what the Lord is creating uh, with our race. Uh, and uh, that goes really, really well uh, for, for a little while. And then, and then the story of the human race starts to fall apart. This guy named Cain, uh, who's the son of Adam and Eve, well, Cain ends up murdering his brother. That, that, that didn't last long. That did not go well. And the Lord has mercy on Cain rather than destroying Cain. He sort of separates Cain from his family and puts him out with some other people and, and, and puts a mark of protection on him. Said, you know, Cain, you did a terrible thing, but I'm not, your life isn't over. Uh, go be fruitful and multiply. So Cain gets grace. 
And, and then the story continues. Some of Cain's descendants are listed until we get to this guy named Lamech in Genesis chapter 4. Uh, and this is going to sound weird, but bear with me. This is uh, Cain's descendant, Lamech. And the thing about Lamech was, Lamech married two women. It's the first time this has happened. Uh, it was one man, one woman. One man, one woman. And then there's this guy, Lamech. And he marries two women. He is, he's an innovator. Lamech, Lamech was, was the first sexual innovator. And Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. And Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Sometime we'll have to do another series on, on, on Genesis. Whenever I read this stuff, I just get fascinated. What this is is sort of a, it's a, it's a map. It's a key to early human history. You can, you can trace, for instance, Tubal Cain. The name Tubal Cain eventually through cultures evolves into the god Vulcan, Vulcan, right? And so it's sort of ancestor worship is how we get like the Greek myths, the Romans myth of the god of Vulcan. And, uh, but forget I said that. Tubal-Cain's sister was Nama. This is the key part. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech. Hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Very weird, right? And the problem here is translation. Uh, this is an example in almost every, every uh, Bible translation, uh, there's a mistake here. Uh, in the original Hebrew, uh, there's, there's really no way to distinguish what is a statement versus what is a question. And, and the Bible translators get this wrong. So it shouldn't read, uh, hey, listen to me, girls. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. What it should read is, hey, listen to me, my two wives. Have I killed a man? for wounding me? Have I killed a young man for injuring me? If, uh, if, Cain, if Cain got off, if he got grace, then how much more will I get grace? You get it? So, so here's, here's what's going on. Lamech is a sexual innovator, right? He's, he spread himself a little too widely, and then, and then here we have his excuses. Yeah, yeah, I married, I married two women. I did it. I went there. But, you know, it's not like I killed somebody. It's not that big a deal, right? I mean, Cain got off for murdering somebody. So if, if anybody comes down on our little commune, then, you know, it should go, they should be punished more than Cain's avengers should be punished, right? You get it? And from this time forward in human history, guys have been using the same excuse with girls. Hey, it's no big deal. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not that big a sin. You know, who does it hurt? It's not like, you know, murder or abuse or something like that. Time immemorial. Uh, that, that's how it's been happening. Uh, what's remarkable to me about this story is that it's at the very, very beginning of the human record. 
right? From the very beginning. This, the, the early stories of Genesis are humanity's attempt to remember the most important things about, its, about itself and about their relationship with God. And right at the beginning, there's a record of humanity trying to remember where it went wrong and why. Because we know that this sort of sexual promiscuity is destructive. And the way we excused it at the very beginning is the same way that we excuse it now. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, not, it's not like a super serious big deal, right? It's just, you know, it, we'll work it out. It's, it, we should be free to choose. I mean, come on, there's grace after all. Yeah, we might not get it just right, but dot, dot, dot. And the problem is that it ends up really injuring society, injuring relationships such that there's a record of it we, humanity has really known it all along, it's just that from time to time uh, we tend to uh, quite willfully uh, forget it. Are you following me? I just find that fascinating. We know, we kind of know what sexual biblical culture is, right? It's, it's, it's not promiscuity. It's like lifelong monogamy. That's the most recommended pattern. Now there, there are, are epics in biblical history in which Society sort of forgets that, but God's always trying to encourage people back to that direction, back, back to that conclusion. Um, and, you know, it started at, at the very beginning. Sexual culture, sexual cultural upheaval is always a hallmark of collapsing societies in history. Uh, that, that has been true. Again, the most famous examples are like the Romans, or, or the Greeks, late, the late Roman Empire was, was famous for its, shall we say, sexual escapades. It totally deconstructed itself sexually. In the late Roman Empire, you know, beginning with the, with the elites, it was a classist society, beginning with elites and, and filtering down, we saw things like institutionalized pedophilia. Uh, we saw, well, I mean, the Roman orgy, right? It's been famous ever since then. Uh, and made a great resurgence in the 70s in America. Um, celebrated incest. Romans would just, Roman emperors would just parade their incest in, in front of the public until it became kind of fashionable among the elites. Uh, incest with siblings and, uh, and with parents. Uh, quite famously, Nero and, and his mother. Uh, a lot, of, a lot of, of gender play, and, and this sort of like androgyny culture in, in the sense that, well, it didn't matter. It didn't matter uh, who you played with, why, and when. Just, you know, you became too sophisticated uh, to bother with that uh, and, and to a point that it got rather brutal. So, uh, so most famously, again, Nero having apparently kicked his wife to death, a mister, and stumbled upon a young boy one day who looked a little bit like his wife. Uh, the boy was a slave, took the boy into his household, had him forcibly castrated, and, and caused him to be dressed as a woman for the rest of his life, and publicly married him, and required everybody to recognize uh, the marriage. And that was all okay. That's just the way, this way they rolled um, back in the day. And I, I don't mean to like, you know, harp on these practices, but just to say, it was the greatest culture the world had ever known, the most successful culture the world had ever known at that point. But they were just, just falling apart at their core 
and sexuality is always part of, of the core. In a couple uh, of weeks, probably, we'll do another sermon where I talk about some of the big questions, the big moral questions of today. You know, we have, we have huge moral uh, debates about, you know, sexuality and sexual expressions and stuff like that, and I don't want to really talk about that stuff uh, today. I'm just saying that when deconstruction takes hold, everything is on the table. And when that happens, you have to make very, very careful choices. And some choices um, end up being pretty, um, pretty destructive. A lot of you have been sexually deconstructed already. And I think we should just be really honest and frank about that at, at Blue Water Mission. Uh, by what, what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of you are already living differently sexually than you would have thought you would when you were, when you first discovered what sex was. Um, because our culture has encouraged you to do it. And a lot of you have, have uh, bought into it. There's been an all-out assault on sexual culture since the 1960s. And it just keeps changing and changing and changing. And it's just becoming a whirlwind of a thing. I read an interesting stat uh, recently. Uh, the most likely age demographic to cheat on their spouse, what would you think, 18 to 29, uh, 30 to 40? The most likely demographic to, do, to cheat in marriage is over 65. Surprise anyone? <laughs> It started in the 60s. It started in the 60s. Once it gets started, right, you, what that means is that by the time you're 65, you have cheated on your spouse. That's what that means. And people born in the 60s are just racking them up. They can't stop once they get started, uh, even, even when they get married. Factoid that may interest only me, but there you go. Um, according to ChristianMingle.com, ChristianMingle.com might merit its own sermon. <laughs> but it's at, it's at least a source of data mining for geeks like me. According to ChristianMingle.com, ChristianMingle.com, 63% of customers between 18 and 59 are okay with sex before marriage. ChristianMingle.com, 63%. Uh, and, and the stats, that's just one of many similar stats, have caused some people to coin a new term, sexual atheists. I mean, you believe in God, Jesus has control over your whole life, except for your sex life. I mean, let's be realistic here. You know, we, we got to express ourselves, right? So you're, you're an atheist when it comes to sex, uh, but otherwise you're a believer. 88% uh, or about 90% of single young adults, 18 to 29 in America, are having sex. About, about 9 out of 10 uh, American young people are sexually active. 80% of self-identified evangelicals are sexually active. So 8 out of 10. Almost no difference. Almost no difference. Of course, that's self-identified evangelicals. Church-going Christians have a far lesser sexual activity uh, rate. Just community and culture is really what decides it for you, not your self-identification which isn't surprising, but still, what, what an enormous uh, statistic that from the National Campaign to Prevent Teen and Unplanned Pregnancy. 
dominant culture has told you to be sexual atheists. And a very large portion of you have probably obediently done what dominant culture told you to do. You know, I, I do enough counseling in this church to know that that's true. And, and frankly, guys, it grieves me a lot because it causes a tremendous amount of destruction as far as I can tell. I use, this, I use the word dominant culture. Dominant culture has told you to be sexual atheist. Dominant culture has told you to be sexually active. There is a lie out there that says, well, really, Christian culture is the dominant culture, and we're trying to overturn that oppressive white patriarchal Christian system. It's been a long time since Christian morals have been dominant in, in, in the sexual world, at least, at least since the early 1960s. And the stats completely bear that out. So please don't participate in that lie. That's silly. I think all of this, uh, this sexual deconstruction, and particularly sexual deconstruction among people who, who kind of want to be sexually conservative, conservative, I think it's all really scary because bad sexual culture has huge consequences in society. Absolutely huge. And let's just explore one, one aspect really quickly. Let's just, let's just explore the consequences of promiscuity, just having multiple sexual partners. Uh, not surprisingly, uh, promiscuity greatly increases uh, the, the rate and the, the spread of sexually transmitted diseases. But promiscuity also transforms the diseases themselves. And unless you're a biologist, you might not know this. So take the example of, of well, let's take the example of flu to begin with. You know how viruses mutate. Uh, there, there, we have influenza viruses out there all the time. It's only when people get very packed together that those viruses become severe, dangerous, or life-threatening. Because a virus in your body does not have an interest in killing you. Because if it kills you, its food goes away, right? If you die, the virus dies. But if it's very easy for the virus to jump from you to somebody else, like if you're living with the person or sleeping with the person, you know, you're very close, then the virus is free to mutate into a very severe, nasty, killing virus because it can jump to another person before you die. You understand? So the, the more closely related and closely packed people are, the more dangerous the form that the virus mutates into. And this is what happens to STDs. You know, when we have a lot of sex, then our sexually transmitted viruses can afford to get lethal. If we're not having much sex, if we're monogamous, then those viruses can't afford to be lethal, and they will be harmless to you. And this is what happened with the virus that came to be called the AIDS virus. Only in hyper-promiscuous environments did it morph did it mutate and become super, super lethal? And that's, that's why we saw, you know, uh, we, the outbreaks of AIDS where we did and in uh, super uh, hypersexual promiscuous cultures in, in certain parts of Africa and then in the, you know, in, in the homosexual bathhouse free sex culture of the, the 70s and early 80s in, in, uh, in, in America and in, across the Western world, promiscuity is what gave AIDS license to happen. It's just the one, you don't hear that very much, do you? Because it's not politically correct to say things like that. 
Um, but lifelong monogamy would have made that all impossible. It would have saved countless millions of, of lives. So that's, I, I just speak about AIDS not to single that out, because, but simply because that's an example that everybody, everybody knows. Um, but, but what we've done, uh, rather than sort of preach abstinence in the face of virulent uh, sexually transmitted diseases like that, um, is, is we've just sort of accommodated uh, per new AIDS patients in America, uh, the, the government spends about $500,000 in research money every year per, per new, there's about over 50,000 new AIDS patients. By contrast, the government spends about $1,000 of research money per cancer patient. So about 500 times more per AIDS patient. Like our, our society has really rallied around the, the sexually transmitted disease. Uh, AIDS funding is just really, really easy to, which, which is great. I mean, you know, it kills people. Uh, so we should, we should get on it. But the, what I'm saying is that the politics gets behind the sex, right? As opposed to where the statistics could push it. I mean, do people die of AIDS more or cancer, heart disease more? You know, cancer, heart disease. But, but our funding, our culture, has really gotten behind the sex part of it. And just kind of shows you that just the hold that it has on us. You know, I'm not saying that AIDS patients deserve it and should die or something like that. This, that's, that's not it because it's, it's a terrible plague. It's an absolutely terrible plague and we should be throwing all we have at it to fix it. I'm just saying if you're measuring dominant culture, sex rules. Sex rules. Even rules are research apparatus. And our research apparatus in America is the best in the world. Um, so don't, don't misunderstand me. It's just really illustrative. Bad sexual behavior destroys families. Uh, lots of studies have shown that cohabitation before marriage increases the divorce rates within those marriages. Uh, uh, premarital promiscuity drastically increases rates of divorce. Uh, being a virgin on your wedding day drastically increases the chance that your marriage will be successful and stable. Uh, economic, economic well-being, um, sex tied to prosperity and social justice. Uh, sure it is. Uh, if you are a child born out of wedlock, your chance of being poor is over 700% higher uh, than if you're born to uh, a two-parent family or you're born within wedlock. Uh, if uh, you're the child of a single parent and your parent gets married, uh, it decreases uh, your chance of poverty by over 80%. Uh, so you're having married parents uh, decreases your chance of being poor by the same amount that your parent having an additional five to six years of higher education does. So you can have a parent PhD or a parent, you know, doctor, or your parent can get married. Uh, statistically, same, same uh, for you. People are thinking on that one. So, oh. um, and, and wherever illegitimate births have gone up in society, uh, poverty has gone up drastically. And right now, uh, the out-of-wedlock birth rate in America is, what do you think? What percentage? 
that's not 70% uh, in America at large. It's about 33%. So about one out of every three kids are born out of wedlock. And so those kids have a very hard go of it uh, socioeconomically in terms of, of social justice. Uh, there, are, there are, are pockets of society that tend to be worse, worse off socioeconomically. Um, and, and I think this is a huge factor. Uh, in 1964, the big civil rights movement started. Uh, there was so much, you know, systematic uh, oppression against African Americans in our country. And, and thank God that things are much better these days. But in 1964, among uh, the black community in America, the out-of-wedlock birth rate was 25%. Uh, these days, the out-of-wedlock birth rate among uh, African Americans is 75%. In, in America, and, and so, you know, they, they struggle with poverty. Uh, the next highest birth rate among major ethnic groups would be Latinos, uh, and then whites, and then Asians. Asians do the best. Uh, yeah, Asians. <laughs> White people, no, not do the best. Uh, cheating rates in marriage, same thing, same exact stack. Uh, and income rates, the same. Asians have the highest income. And then the next way, way down would be whites and Latinos and blacks. So the more your family stays together, in other words, the more conservative your family structure, the more social justice you will experience as a child. You know? Um, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying. If everyone practiced lifelong monogamy, society would be way better off be way better off. And this is incontrovertible. This is factual. There's, there's no way to argue uh, differently. But no one talks about it that way. In fact, uh, you know, people who talk just frankly about the stats, like me, uh, are often cast as oppressors. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm being oppressive. Um, and, uh, you know, never mind that the, the negative consequences of promiscuity Never mind that the negative consequences of promiscuity affect women more than men. You know, if I talk about promiscuity, I'm a woman basher somehow. I don't know how that works. Never mind the socioeconomic benefits of, of quote-unquote conservative sexuality. Never mind that families require sexual discipline to work. Never mind that conservative sexuality promotes household prosperity, educational success from the children, self-reported higher levels of happiness among both children and parents, and better physical health. Never mind all of that stuff. If you promote conservative sexuality, you're an oppressor. You need to be deconstructed. And I could go on and on about that. Here's the thing, uh, that the Bible presents sexual guidelines as a health thing. If you obey these guidelines, then you will be healthier as a people. And sort of go through our final scripture today. Leviticus 18, which these days is probably the most famous sexual passage. Or, that's not the Bible on sexual, uh, passage on sexual things. It's not really a sexual passage. But, uh, you know. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live. You must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. Don't follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Trust me on this, he says. Keep my decrees and laws. For the person who obeys them will live by them. In other words, this will fill you full of life. 
And if you don't listen to them, then unhealthy things are going to happen. That's how the Lord frames what he says about sex. And then he says, no one is to approach any close relative that has sexual relations with them. I am the Lord. You would think, well, I mean, that, that makes sense. But it did not make sense to the countries that were around Israel, right? This, is, this comes from, from, from the Lord. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. Well, I mean, yes. You know, these days we might recognize that uh, to be obvious. Uh, but, but that's not what people were doing around uh, Israel. There was just rampant uh, you know, incest, deconstructed sex, just like in the Roman Empire. Do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same home or elsewhere. You have to honor the family first and how families work. Do not have sexual relations with both the woman and her daughter. Do not have sexual relations with either her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter. They are close relatives. This is wickedness. And this might seem basic to you, but this was God conducting a revolution. Do not approach a woman to have sexual relations uh, during the uncleanness of her monthly period. Uh, that's a, a bigger statement, but, but there's something to do with you know, honoring and, and respecting and being gentle. Um, do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. Well, yeah, that, that becomes one of the Big Ten Commandments. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, a pagan god, for you must not profane the name of your God. Uh, what happened, it was the, the popular religion in that place was to have a kid and then immediately sacrifice the infant uh, to, to the fire in honor of this pagan God who was going to give you uh, pr um, prosperity and sexual gratification. And that, that was the thing. That was part of the, the dominant culture. And God was saying, yeah, don't play that game. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. Uh, that's, that's detestable. Literally, that's harmful. Don't do that. And this is the, the prescription against homosexuality that makes this passage really famous. Uh, we'll talk about that in another sermon. Do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. Yep. And a woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it uh, either. Uh, don't make a spectacle of it. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways because that is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. It's a practice that I have to stamp out, the Lord is saying. Now, you might read some of that stuff and be like, well, yeah, I mean, obviously that stuff is bad. Everybody knows that, but everybody doesn't know that. And history is just filled with examples of where people, where culture goes sexually when they lose their bearings, when they start to deconstruct themselves. And, and I think we're sort of headed uh, in, in that direction, to be perfectly honest with you, because everything is being deconstructed. But note that all of these commands are commands with respect to health. Stay healthy. This is what makes your life full of life. This is what makes your families work. This is what makes society function in a healthy way. And you might not, might not see that there's anything wrong with having, you know, conceptual sense with sex with these people or that people. But, but trust me, I'm God. I know better. That's what the passage says. And if you don't trust me, it's going to go downhill for you fast. And you, you might read through some of these practices and say, well, I don't, I don't necessarily see what's so harmful about that. But, but the stats don't bear you out. You know, the simple truth shows something different. And you have to be willing to sort of accept the truth. 
you might say to me, well, Jordan, that's just sort of your Christian white hetero patriarchy talking. Uh, people have said that to me on Facebook, uh, which I avoid. Uh, but, but it's not, because most patriarch was just to say most men would, would not advocate lifelong monogamy. I don't know if I'm authorized to speak on behalf of all men, but I think men are sort of hardwired for multiple sex partners. If you're not married, you're allowed to say amen. And I think very few biological behavioralists would argue the point. Men are biologically wired for polygamy. Few would disagree. But having multiple sex partners, multiple sex partners in a day, uh, you know, we're, we're able. It's our basic drive. You know, it's kind, of, it's kind of our identity. It's common and powerful in history. Men want a lot of different partners. It's natural, but it's not good. It's not good. It causes harm, and our sex drive needs to be disciplined. Uh, you know, my lust for multiple partners may be natural, but maybe there's something that's more natural. Maybe... I'm always maturing as a sexual creature, right? Maybe I need to discipline my, myself sexually in order that my, sexually becomes, my sexuality becomes something that's life-giving and that is a blessing to the larger community rather than a curse to the larger community. Maybe we'll, we're all maturing as a race sexually and we need to bear in mind where deconstruction sexuality has taken humanity in years past. Maybe we should be tamed. We should be disciplined. And very gentle and loving and honoring toward one another when we struggle with it because that's what it comes down to, right? It's hard to do it. It's hard to live a sexually disciplined life and it has never been harder for the people of God to do it. We just need to be honest about it. We need to speak the truth about it and we need to help one another because no matter who you are, it's a struggle for you. I just wanna leave you with this thought. Maybe you're not a given sexually. You know what I mean by that? Maybe your, your urges aren't just a fact that you need to accept. Or, or I'll say it this way. Maybe you're not discovering your sexual identity. Maybe you're developing your sexual identity. We'll talk about this more in subsequent sermons, but there's this huge conversation in culture these days about sexual identity and all sorts of different definitions. And I, I just, you know, I, I, I don't like the terms of the conversation because we don't discover who we are sexually. We construct who we are sexually. We make hard choices about who we are sexually. Everybody has to. That's one of the challenges of sexual life. You are not a robot. You are not pre-programmed with software that determines what you do, what you think, and how you approach things. You develop yourself. And the Bible has a suggestion for you. And it says, develop in healthy ways. Think about what God says, as if God might just know better. You know what I mean by that? 
Now, now, for us to be a community of developing sexual identities, we have to be a very humble, very honoring, very loving, very safe, and very frank, truthful community. That, that's, that's a tall order. But what I'm hoping is that we're able to do that here and to avoid the sort of groupism and identity politics and argument and nonsense that characterizes the culture at large. And if we pull it off, then I think we'll become sexually free, by which I mean we'll get to make choices instead of just making reactions. Does that make sense? God bless us. Let's pray. Well, nothing is more acrimonious in culture, Lord, than, than sexuality and sexual politics. It is hard to think clearly and to speak clearly about them. Uh, but we trust, Lord, that your advice is meant for our health and freedom and not for our oppression. I pray for the presence of your spirit uh, to make this uh, a powerful, uh, safe place uh, to address our concerns, our construction and our deconstruction. So that we can all mature uh, and be who we choose to be in you. Let's kind of give the Holy Spirit uh, just a few seconds to, to speak uh, to each of you. There's one way or another, this is fundamental to all of us. your help, God. We just need your help. And in the name of Jesus, I pray for help. I pray for help. Uh, wherever we are, whatever we're thinking, whatever we're locked into in life, offer that humble prayer. God, help. Amen.